1859, researcher Alfred Wallace journeyed to Indonesia, hoping to learn more about the natural world. Somewhere on the island of Sulawesi, he allegedly stumbled upon various mounds of dead ants scattered around their respective colonies. Surprised by the discovery, he and other scientists mined the ant graveyards for carcasses to study. When early naturalists examined the bodies, they could only guess at what was happening. Later, researchers suspected that a mysterious parasite had infected the insects after they'd stepped on some fungus spores. The parasitic fungi fed on the ants while they were still alive and infiltrated their nervous systems. Scientists would go on to learn that the fungus didn't interact with the head or brain, but it was still able to manipulate the ants' muscles. Even if the insects weren't self-aware enough to realize it, the parasite could make them travel places they didn't choose to go. They were trapped inside bodies they could no longer control. It operated and spread like something out of a horror film, even in the way it spread. When the insects died, the fungus released more spores, thereby infecting more of the colony. And so the discovery came to be known in some circles as the zombie fungus. Thankfully, the parasite doesn't seem to infect humans. But in the early 1980s, ethnobotanist Wade Davis returned from a trip to Haiti with ingredients that did. A zombie potion that could induce a death-like coma and an antidote that could bring them back. The only problem, he couldn't explain how it all worked through science. It seemed to be magic. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on zombies, creatures of myth and legend that just might be real. In Haitian voodoo culture, offenders can be punished via zombification. They seem to die, then rise from their graves to a life of hard labor, all with the help of a possibly magical poison and antidote. Last time, we followed ethnobotanist and explorer Wade Davis into the Haitian jungles to explore the world of voodoo. There, he uncovered the secret ingredients for a zombie poison. Today, Davis returns to Haiti in the hopes of understanding the poison's antidote. And to do so, he infiltrates the country's most dangerous secret societies. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In 1982, ethnobotanist Wade Davis learned the ingredients for a zombie potion that made people appear dead. But this only completed half of his mission. When Davis interviewed voodoo practitioners called bokors and real-life zombies like Clairvius Narcisse, he learned there were two steps in the zombification process. First, a poison put the target deep into a death-like sleep. Then, an antidote brought them back to life. But no matter how much he studied the antidote, he couldn't explain it. Not through science, anyway. As far as Davis could tell, the ingredients shouldn't be able to reverse the poison's effects. Perhaps there was some magical aspect to the recipe. When he couldn't make headway on understanding the antidote through chemistry, Davis tried to expand his research. And in doing so, it's very possible he stumbled upon a psychological phenomenon that had several qualities in common with zombification, called voodoo death. One of the earliest accounts of voodoo death comes from 1906. An Irish soldier and ethnographer named Arthur Glyn Leonard was working in southern Nigeria when he met a local warrior suffering from an illness. The warrior claimed someone had cast an evil spell on him that made him sick. Leonard didn't believe that magic had caused the man's illness, but the truth was undeniable. The warrior was dying almost as if his belief in a supernatural curse made it real, like some strange black magic version of the placebo effect. Something similar happened to soldiers who fought in World War I. Men who never suffered any injuries on the battlefield would mysteriously die after returning home. The trauma they experienced had been mental, watching their fellow soldiers suffer and die on the front lines. The horrors of war seemed to send them into physical shock. Their bodies manifested disease-like symptoms before they literally died of fear. Perhaps, like these afflictions, fear was a necessary ingredient in the zombification ritual. Practitioners of voodoo grew up hearing stories of criminals sent to live the rest of their days as undead laborers, working in dehumanizing, often terrifying conditions. So if someone ever received that sentencing, the power of their own fear may have played a pivotal role in the ritual's so-called magic. Of course, there were other factors at play as well. The zombie poison contained hallucinogenic and toxic ingredients that caused real physical symptoms. Davis learned it contained potent chemicals secreted from a certain type of toad that could send victims into deep, lethargic states. Another key ingredient was the pufferfish, named for its unique defense mechanism. When threatened, 
these fish will swallow large amounts of water and inflate their bodies to become too large for predators to get their jaws around. Some are covered in tiny spikes. Many are highly toxic. Ironically, in Japan, the pufferfish is a delicacy. Known as fugu, the fish is primarily served in fine dining establishments. Licensed chefs trained to avoid the toxins serve it as sashimi. But dining on fugu is like playing Russian roulette. If it isn't prepared properly, it can make customers very sick. As he explains in his book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, Davis wanted to know what role the fish played in the zombification process. So to better understand it, he sent a sample to a toxicologist. He learned the pufferfish used in the zombie potion had an extremely lethal poison in its skin, liver, ovaries, and intestines. 160,000 times stronger than cocaine and over 500 times more potent than cyanide. If someone consumed just a pin-sized dose of pufferfish venom, they might begin to have an out-of-body experience or struggle to breathe. As we discussed in part one, a man named Clervius Narcisse was poisoned by the zombie potion and buried underground. During that time, he remembered floating over his gravesite. The antidote brought him back to life. His account sounds consistent with the symptoms of pufferfish poisoning. But how did the Bokors, the voodoo priests who made the concoction, get the dosing right? It couldn't have been easy. Too much of the fish's venom and the target could die from respiratory failure. Too little and they would never enter a comatose state. They may only feel a little numb or lose control of some of their motor functions. One way to ensure the proper dosage would have been to add the precise amount to someone's food or drink and make sure they consumed all of it. But when Davis visited Haiti, he learned the Bokors made the poison into a powder. Allegedly, they'd sprinkle it on the ground for their victims to unwittingly step on. Occasionally, they'd blow the substance in their faces. And these methods were hard for Davis to wrap his head around. How could the Bokors control how much of the toxins or how little would enter their target's bloodstream? Had they perfected their attempts after years of trial and error? Or was there something more spiritual at play? Davis wanted scientific proof of how the zombie potion worked. To achieve that, he needed replicable results in a lab. He enlisted the assistance of Professor Leon Roizen, a New York-based pathologist, an expert on drugs and their effects on the human nervous system. Davis didn't tell Roizen what he knew about pufferfish or any of the other toxins in the potion. He didn't want the professor's research to be impacted by bias. Davis and Roizen poisoned a group of lab rats with the powder from Haiti and observed their behavior. About 40 minutes later, the rodents' movements slowed. They became sluggish. To test their responsiveness, Roizen pointed a light at their eyes. The animals reacted, but not as strongly as Roizen expected. Within an hour, the rats practically stopped moving altogether. After six hours, the rodents stopped reacting to stimuli. When Roizen stuck their tails with pins, they didn't respond. They didn't wake up. They were comatose, not dead. 
Royzen could detect faint heartbeats and brainwaves. It was the breakthrough Davis had been looking for. The ethnobotanist safely concluded that pufferfish venom, along with other ingredients he'd identified, like secretions from a poisonous toad, played a key role in the zombie potion. But major questions still loomed over Davis's research. Most importantly, he didn't understand how the antidote worked. After weeks in a laboratory, he hadn't made any real headway. He kept thinking about what Bacor Marcel-Pierre told him in Haiti. The antidote only worked with the proper spells and rituals. Coming up, Davis dives into the world of Haitian secret societies. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After studying the zombie poison and its antidote for weeks in a lab, ethnobotanist Wade Davis still couldn't fully understand how they worked. So he traveled back to Haiti to interview individuals who held some of the highest ranks in the nation's secret societies. He wanted to learn more about their culture, rituals, and magical beliefs. Gaining access to these groups proved challenging, especially for an outsider like Davis. Born in Canada, he worked in the United States. Davis only knew of one foreign-born researcher who'd come close to infiltrating these Haitian societies in the past. Anthropologist and author Zora Neale Hurston. A black American woman, Hurston took an interest in African-American folklore. At the turn of the 20th century, most media in the States depicted voodoo as evil, ominous, and lawless. In the 1930s, Hurston sought to push back against these stereotypes by learning the truth about voodoo firsthand. She traveled to Haiti, where she met and lived with locals. She listened to their stories, studying the Creole language, and attended voodoo ceremonies. In coming to a better understanding of the religion, she learned practitioners worshipped spirits they called Lua. But during her time in Haiti, Hurston also heard rumors about dark societies that frightened locals. 
members supposedly met in the middle of the night under a shroud of secrecy. One evening, Hurston woke up in the middle of the night and smelled burning rubber. She asked a man who lived nearby where the odor was coming from. That's when he told her about a secret society called the Cochon Gris, meaning gray pigs. The man lit a huge fire in his yard to drive the group away. He feared they might steal his newborn child to use in one of their dark rituals. He told Hurston that the Cochon Gris ate people. Unsettled, Hurston went back inside and locked her door. She didn't know what to make of the accusation of cannibalism, but vowed to learn more. So she set her sights on infiltrating the society. Knowing they'd be suspicious of outsiders, Hurston relied on friends and contacts to get a foot in the door. Hurston hired a guide to take her to a temple located deep in a poverty-stricken neighborhood of Haiti. It belonged to the Cochon Gris. When they arrived at the temple, the guide gave the researcher a paper with a secret password on it. The code gave Hurston access to the temple. Inside, she expected to find the space filled with pictures of spirits and ancestors. Instead, she found herself staring at an altar with a large black stone attached to a chain and an iron bar. Tools that looked like they might have been used for human sacrifice. The temple flew in the face of everything Hurston had come to understand about voodoo. Clearly, the Cochon Gris held beliefs that were distinct from mainstream Haitian culture, and it wasn't alone. As Hurston continued her travels and visited other societies, she learned each one seemed to operate with its own unique values, rituals, and hierarchy. As we discussed last time, elaborate ceremonies often utilize drums, chanting, and dance. Some practiced zombification, but other magical rituals were so secret nobody was allowed to view them. Not unless they were a member. Even with all of her connections, Hurston could only go so far. She returned to the States and wrote an acclaimed nonfiction book based on her experience. She titled it, Tell My Horse. Along with her earlier voodoo-inspired novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, the work cemented her reputation as a prolific American writer. Decades later, Davis hoped to find success where Hurston couldn't. He believed he could actually join these societies and learn their secret magic for himself. But by 1984, a lot had changed. Davis's mentor and friend who'd funded Davis's last trip to Haiti had died. Marcel Pierre, the Bocor, who made Davis the zombie powder to take back to the States, was now preoccupied. He spent his days caring for his sick wife. Searching for new guides and contacts in Haiti, Davis found a voodoo priest named Erard Simon. And Simon shared a surprising fact with the scientist. Davis knew zombification was only a small part of voodoo religion, a severe punishment reserved for extreme circumstances. But Davis wasn't the only one lacking insight in the process. According to Simone, most practitioners didn't understand how it worked themselves. Priests and bokors knew how to make the powders, but they weren't allowed to use them unless a special tribunal sanctioned the zombification. 
These tribunals were made up of members of various secret societies. Davis asked Simon if he could connect with the groups, but Simon brushed him off. Outsiders could only learn the superficial elements of voodoo. They weren't allowed to dive deeper into the mysteries of the underworld. If Simon violated this rule, both of their lives would be in jeopardy. Undeterred, Davis asked Simon about one particular society he had heard rumors of during his travels, a powerful group whose influence extended across much of rural Haiti, the Bizango. Simon warned Davis not to get involved. He called the group a devil-worshipping cult, claiming that anyone who tried to infiltrate the society might be turned into a zombie. But Davis didn't give up. In spite of Simon's caution, he began talking to locals, hoping someone might tell him more. Eventually, he found someone willing to talk. The man and Davis shared a mutual connection, voodoo priest Max Beauvoir. His name was Isnar, and he told Davis a story about how he first got involved with Haitian secret societies. One evening, while in his hometown, Isnar heard the sound of distant drums, some kind of ritual. He snuck out of his house to find out what was happening, and he stumbled upon a ceremony being held by two different Bizango societies at the same time, one local, one visiting. A friend who belonged to the local society recognized Isnar and invited him to join. He accepted but his willingness proved to be a mistake. The visiting society didn't trust the newcomer. They feared he posed some kind of threat, so they circled around him. Isnar tried to escape, but couldn't. The Bizangos sang songs and danced around him, making strange and unfamiliar gestures. He knew they must have been secret signs that members used to communicate with each other. They were testing him to see if he was one of them. With every second that passed, it became clear. Isnar was an intruder. Then, when it seemed as if all hope was lost, a wave of energy washed over him. Maybe it was adrenaline. But Isnar claimed it felt like a powerful being, perhaps a Loa, one of the voodoo spirits, gave him strength to escape. He burst into a sprint, weaving and ducking through the line of men and women. Isnar almost made it out of the compound before he was caught, blindfolded, and dragged back to the group's leaders. The men dropped him in front of a cross and demanded he plead his case. Scared, Isnar begged and prayed for safety. He sang a song invoking the spirit of Baron Samdi, the guardian of the graveyard. The song surprised his captors. They'd placed Isnar in front of Baron Samdi's cross, but he had no way of knowing that. They took this as a sign that Isnar was favored by the spirit. They freed him on the spot and then initiated him into their society. Afterward, Isnar saw another side of the group's culture. They weren't evil. They supported him. If anyone tried to hurt him, they would help. Isnar could always rely on the Bizango leader, the emperor, for aid. If a violation was serious enough, the group would turn the transgressor into a zombie, 
But they didn't act on the word of their members alone, and they punished members who abused their trust. If Isnar accused someone of wrongdoing and that person was found innocent, Isnar could be punished for the false accusation. Davis was encouraged by Isnar's account. As harsh as their punishments could be, the Bizangos seemed to have a sense of justice. In his book, The Rainbow and the Serpent, Davis describes how Isnar quickly began to share more stories. They became good friends, and eventually, Isnar surprised the scientists with an invitation to one of the secret society's gatherings without any warning. One day, while Davis was watching a movie, the voodoo priest Erar Simon showed up at a theater. He approached the ethnobotanist and told Davis to follow him into the night. Davis knew it must be something important. It was late. Being outside after dark could be dangerous, particularly if you didn't know where you were headed. But Davis trusted Simon. He followed his colleague through the city's winding streets until they reached a tall gate. Simon knocked three times, and a woman opened the door. She led them into a dimly lit compound. Davis squinted to take in his surroundings. Through the dark, he saw a few small huts and a temple with flickering lights. An eerie calm ran through the compound. People passed by in total silence without any words of acknowledgement. After several uneasy minutes, Davis and Simon entered a private room with bamboo walls and a tin roof. Inside, about two dozen people waited for them with wary eyes. A human skull decorated the room. The skull was an important symbol in Bizango society. Simone had brought Davis to an important temple. Soon, a man with a soft voice stepped forward. Simone explained that this was President Jean-Baptiste, a local leader of the Bizangos. He seemed kind, powerful, but understated. Apparently, he was willing to share his group's secrets with Davis. According to Baptiste, the Bizangos existed to maintain order and combat the efforts of the devil, thieves, and other evildoers, who, they believed, did most of their work at night. No one could be out after dark without incurring the Bizangos' judgment. The group protected their members as well as their families. They used magic spells and powders to trap enemies, but their rituals weren't intended to harm. They were meant to bring justice. Davis looked around. Simone and Baptiste respected him, but other Bizangos watched him with a sense of reverence bordering on suspicion. This was his chance to learn the society's most closely guarded secrets. Coming up, Davis comes face to face with death. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. In March 1984, Wade Davis meant Jean-Baptiste, the leader of the local Bizangos. Later that year, Baptiste invited Davis and Max Beauvoir's daughter, Rachel, to one of the group's ceremonies at their temple. Davis readily agreed. During the ceremony, members placed candles and velvet hats at the foot of a coffin. A tall woman wearing a buccaneer's hat and long satin dress walked through the temple. Tonight, she would start her own Bizango society. Davis took a seat to watch the proceedings. But as the ritual got underway, a large man interrupted the event and accused Davis of stealing their secrets. He claimed the scientist was recording them. Davis wasn't sure how to respond. He was recording audio on a cassette. Though it was unusual, the local society's leader, Jean-Baptiste, had given him permission. Even so, Davis quickly handed over the tape. Some tried to defend Davis. They didn't think he posed a real threat. But others saw him as an infiltrator. As they argued, Davis feared for his safety. He and Rachel backed up until they hit a wall. They were cornered with no way to escape. The lights flickered. Flames flared from the bottom of the coffin. The drums beat louder. Then the lights went out. When they came back on, Davis saw dust suspended in midair. He held his breath, worried that he might be inhaling zombie powder. At that moment, another Bizango president spoke up and reminded the crowd that Davis was their guest. Baptiste had personally invited the ethnobotanist to record the ceremony. He also reminded them that the night's ceremony was open to the public. The attendees nodded. One by one, they backed down. As Davis tried to make sense of how that had happened, the ritual resumed. Members returned his cassette. Song and dance filled the air. For hours, Davis lost himself in the voodoo ritual. The next day, Davis replayed the night's events in his mind. When Baptiste allowed him to observe the Bizango customs, it was as if he was giving his seal of approval, even though Davis wasn't an actual member. But that trust allowed Davis access to more information, and he learned a surprising fact about Clairvius Narcisse, the zombie he'd interviewed during his first trip to Haiti. We spoke about him extensively in our last episode. The accusations against Narcisse didn't come from his brother like Narcisse believed. They actually came from his uncle, who must have been a member of the Bizangos. Apparently, the uncle claimed that his nephew had broken one of the laws that bound members of the society. Whatever it was, it must have been a grave offense, enough for the group to turn Narcisse into a zombie. 
But even with access to so much more information, Davis hadn't made headway on the mystery that drew him to Haiti in the first place, the zombie antidote. Those secrets were buried deep in oral tradition and early texts that might take years to fully comprehend. To understand them, he'd have to immerse himself in the Bizango culture and become a high-ranking, full-fledged member. Davis wasn't ready to take that final step. And even if he did, the researcher wasn't sure he'd ever know the whole truth. His journey had brought him closer to understanding a complex culture. He'd entered the country as an ethnobotanist, but left with a profoundly different worldview and a respect for spirituality. But when Davis returned to America and published his findings, he faced a lot of criticism. Many Westerners believed zombies were a myth. Davis's studies seemed to perpetuate stereotypes about Haitian voodoo. Some questioned his toxicology findings, suggesting that even though pufferfish toxins are immensely poisonous, they'd be pretty ineffective in powder form. The concentration couldn't possibly be enough to cause the intense reactions described in his accounts. Some thought zombification wasn't real at all. Perhaps, when the dead seemed to come back to life, it was simply a case of mistaken identity and wishful thinking. Haiti's mental health system wasn't always effective, and some untreated people found themselves unhoused, wandering the streets with little sense of who or where they were. Some suggested that grieving people might be taking in strangers with severe mental health conditions, declaring their loved one had come back from the dead. Davis maintained his original stance, but of course, his emphasis on some unknown spiritual component didn't necessarily help his reputation as a scientist. He struggled to find acceptance among many of his peers, and his lack of hard evidence didn't help. During his brief time in Haiti, Davis did manage to watch someone prepare the zombie poison from start to finish. But he never witnessed someone return from their grave. To this day, it's unlikely that any researcher ever has. So, in spite of Davis's studies, many still question the authenticity of these accounts, whether humans can actually be put into a death-like state, buried and brought back to life. For some, zombies are a documented phenomenon, a fact of life for many people living in Haiti. For others, they're myths, relegated to the realm of science fiction. Where does that leave us? Well, maybe we should take a page from Davis's book and open our minds to the possibility that both of these statements can hold truth. Science and magic can coexist. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. For more information on zombification, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Serpent and the Rainbow by Wade Davis and Tell My Horse by Zora Neale Hurston extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. 
Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Drew Dougal, edited by Angela Jorgensen and Connor Sampson, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Josephine Cahew, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Juan Borda. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. Thank you.